This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Welcome to Shrink Chicks. I'm Emily Beerley. And I'm Jennifer Chaikin. And we're licensed marriage and family therapists and owners of the therapy group. We're on a mission to make therapy and therapeutic topics more relatable and accessible. So stay tuned, because in order to grow yourself, you gotta know yourself. We are so excited to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Kristen Neff. Dr. Neff is a best-selling author, a professor of educational psychology, one of the most influential researchers in psychology worldwide, and most importantly, the self-compassion expert and pioneer. Her latest book, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive is something we most definitely want to chat about today. Welcome, Kristen. We are so excited to have you on Shrink Chicks. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Uh, We love the topic of self-compassion. We talk about it all the time. We think it's so important. But to hear it from, you know, the true expert and pioneer, can you explain to us what self-compassion is? How would you describe it? Yeah, so it's actually fairly simple. It's just compassion turned inward. And if you think of what compassion is, in the Latin, passion means to suffer, come means with. It's basically how are we with suffering? So normally with our friends, we're we're pretty kind, we're pretty supportive, you know, we're there for our friends, we listen to them. With ourselves, we tend to beat ourselves up and treat ourselves like crap. Not everyone, but you know, there's a big difference. So the easiest way to think of what self-compassion is, is just treating yourself with the same support, kindness, understanding, encouragement. When you're when you failed, maybe you made a mistake or just something challenging has happened in your life, uh, as you would a good friend. Mm. Why do you think it is that we have such an easier time giving compassion to others, but but not to ourselves? Like, what do you think makes that challenging for people? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons. Um, some are evolutionary, some are cultural. So we, we have a lot to go up against. I'll I'll just talk quickly about the evolutionary reasons. Evolutionarily, when when we're threatened in some way, we're designed to respond with fight, flight, or freeze. So, you know, we fight the problem, we run away from it, or we freeze and play dead. But the problem is, is if the problem is within ourselves, we made a mistake, or, you know, we've done something wrong, or there's something difficult in our lives, we turn the fight, flight, or freeze response inward. We fight ourselves, we criticize ourselves, thinking that somehow that'll like, you know, get us into shape and change so that we'll be safe. Or we flee into a sense of shame. We kind of hang our head in shame, like metaphorically isolating ourselves from the group who may be angry at us. Or we freeze and we get stuck and we ruminate. Right? With our, when, you, when your friend, let's say your friend makes a big mistake, you aren't so personally threatened. You don't go into threat defense mode. Actually, sometimes they your spouse you do. So a little less people are really close. Not with their friends. So with our friends, we're more able to go into what's called the care mode, which is also an evolved system and evolved, a, you know, prompt parents with their children and group members to cooperate. And this is where we can use comfort and soothing and kindness and support to stay safe. But really, evolutionarily, we're designed, you know, let's face it, we're designed to give care to others. We're designed to beat ourselves up. So don't beat yourself up if you beat yourself up. Like evolution <laughs> planned it that way. So that, that's a big barrier to overcome. And then we can talk later this, a lot of cultural things. None of us were really raised to be self-compassionate. We're taught it's selfish or we're suspicious of it. 
So there's a lot of barriers to overcome, but the good news is, is because care is natural for others, albeit, but it's still natural. It's not like rocket science. We know how to do it. We just have to give ourselves permission Mm. to be caring toward ourselves. Now I have, I've watched, um, you know, I followed your work for a long time. I'm a big fan. Um, And I've heard you speak before that you were going through a divorce yourself. And that's how you sort of stumbled upon this. Can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So I I didn't invent the idea of self-compassion by any means. (laughs) You didn't? Yeah. No, (laughs) I was was perhaps one of of the first to research it, define it, etc. I actually learned about it um, when I first learned mindfulness meditation. So it was when I was uh, finishing up my PhD a long time ago. And yeah, I had just gotten through a divorce. Uh, under a lot of stress. First of all, I was feeling shame about the divorce and what happened. And I was feeling badly about myself and like a failure. And I was also really freaked out because I'd spent six years getting my PhD with no job prospects in sight. And I'd be overqualified for any job perhaps I could get. So I was feeling a lot of stress. So I, I decided to learn mindfulness meditation because I heard it was good for stress. And luckily for me, thank goodness, it was it was taught in the tradition of a, a Zen teacher named Thich Nhat Hanh, beautiful teacher, recently passed, who always talked a lot about self-compassion. So the very first night I went, even before I learned meditation, you know, the teacher was talking about being kind with yourself, supportive with yourself, gentle with yourself like you would to a friend. It, it took me a while to get the meditation thing, but the very first night I was able to say, you know, like, like, oh, okay, how would I talk to myself like a friend? Well, okay, Kristen, you're going through a really hard time. You feel badly. You know, you're doing the best you can. I'm here for you. And immediately I noticed it made it easier to bear. Like, it didn't make things go away, but it, it felt like I had the support to help me through all the difficult feelings I was feeling. And then when I did finally get a job at University of Texas at Austin, you know, I decided to uh, research it and develop a scale to measure it and took off from there. Wow. It, it really speaks to like the shift in what happens when you start to give yourself, you know, more compassion, taking care of yourself and nurturing yourself. So, you know, I'm curious in your work, do you, you know, do you find like if you're unable to give yourself self-compassion, like how does that affect someone? How will that play out in their relationships? What will happen? Yeah. Well, so people who are, you know, unself-compassionate, in other words, you're very self-critical and Kind of the opposite of self-compassion is judging yourself, feeling isolated and, and ruminating. So that's really, I mean, those factors are directly tied to things like depression, anxiety, you know, things like eating disorders, even, even in extreme case, suicidal ideation. So if you're stuck in that place, you're, you're just more vulnerable to mental health disorders. And the, the wonderful thing about self-compassion is that immediately it's like sw- flipping a switch. So instead of being judgmental, you're being kind. Instead of feeling isolated, you feel connected to other people. You recognize, by the way, these are the three components I should probably talk about. There's kindness, you know, being kind and supportive to yourself. Um, there's the sense of common humanity. But even though the word self is there, there's really not a lot of self-focus because it's just saying, hey, everyone is human. Everyone makes mistakes. It's not just me. It feels like it's just me, but of course it's not. You know, we're all human beings doing the best we can. We're connected in this big experience called life. And then mindfulness. Mindfulness, the ability to be aware of what's happening is what stops the rumination and the being lost in thought. Mm. So it's like you put the switch from being hard on yourself to being warm to yourself. 
And then really everything changes. Your body changes, your physiology changes, your mental state changes. Um, and it just improves. There's so, there's almost over 5,000 studies now, um, showing the benefits of self-compassion. So wow. wow. Yeah. We, we know pretty well what happens. It, it, the, it really helps. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. And we, we wanted to, you know, because in our work, obviously we're seeing clients and we notice how, how hard it is for people to be able to give themselves this. And we asked a lot of our listeners too, we said, you know, what are some of the reasons why you struggle to give yourself self-compassion? People said, you know, I don't feel worthy enough, perfectionism. Um, I always seem to put other people ahead of myself. I'm programmed to feel guilty because I know better and I'm capable of doing better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is all um, very, very common. I mean, most people are much more compassionate to others and themselves. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, we don't want to forget the evolutionary piece because it's kind of the, so our first go-to reaction when we fail to make a mistake is self-criticism because it's a sympathetic nervous system. So it's not just because like you're a failure at self-compassion. There are reasons. Um, but the thing about being worthy of self-compassion, I mean, when a baby is born, we say, okay, once you go to graduate school or, you know, make a certain amount of money, then you deserve compassion. No, compassion is a human right, right? It actually is part of our humanity, this understanding that we're all kind of interconnected, we're all doing the best we can, that, you know, we aren't in total control of what happens and we're just kind of, you know, moment by moment trying to like, you know, do the best we can. And so so that's one thing that sadly is our culture kind of treats us as if we have to earn the right to compassion. I mean, you don't have to earn the right to compassion. But of course, a lot of people weren't treated as if they were worthy of compassion, especially by early caregivers or maybe teachers. And so really, self-compassion can actually heal the blocks of self-compassion. Really trauma, for instance, or insecure attachment, which you probably talk about on this show, you know, not having a good working model of trusting others. You can actually give yourself compassion for the pain of feeling that. It's like, imagine if a friend said, I feel so unworthy. I don't even feel worthy of compassion. You probably, oh, you know, that's not true. You know, I care about you, right? So you can actually relate to your own lack of self-compassion with compassion. Wow. You could wear the pain of it with mindfulness, recognize you aren't alone. You're actually in the majority and be kind to yourself because of that. And then you're, then you're you know, you're giving yourself compassion. So it's really just a mental shift. I think another thing that trips trips people up is they think it's, they think like they're creating the self-compassion, like I have to generate the compassion. Compassion naturally arises. You know, in, in some traditions, it's actually this loving quality is part of awareness itself. As soon as we kind of, the clouds of thoughts and the emotions part for a moment, the sunshine already has this loving, peaceful quality to it. So you don't have to, Read it. It's just you kind of have to get just get out of the way of it. Yes. <laughs> it's already there. Whether you want to think of that as part of awareness or even just part of your evolution, you know, it's also part of your body. It's it's not really hard. If, if you're trying really hard, it's probably not self compassion. It's striving, trying to fix yourself, trying to improve your improve yourself. Compassion is like a softening. It's like a, a letting go, letting go of these ideals of perfection and these ideas of, you know, I should be able to control everything. And you're just, your heart naturally opens and then compassion's there. Mm 
We are so excited to share our newest sponsor with you all, Hungry Root. Hungry Root is the easiest way to get fresh, high-quality groceries and simple, healthy recipes delivered to your door. The team at Hungry Root just sent me a new box full of amazing stuff. It was literally like I was opening a present going through it. Seeing what was inside and trying everything was just so thrilling. In my Hungry Root box was chicken salad, veggies, dumplings, shakes, cookies, and so much more. My favorite thing I tried was the drumroll donuts. I highly recommend them. The ordering process could not have been more simple. You take a fun, short quiz, and Hungry Root will get to know your personal health goals, what you like to eat, the kitchen appliances you use, and more. Then they'll build you a personalized cart with all of your grocery needs for the week and give you delicious recipe recommendations to put those groceries to good use. Hungry Root will recommend recipes and groceries based on your personal tastes, but each order is fully customizable. Take their suggestions or choose anything you want. They've got fresh produce, high-quality meat and seafood, pantry staples, healthy snacks, sweets, ready-to-eat meals, and much more. Hungry Root has made my daily meal prep so much easier. The mental load of grocery shopping is exhausting, and Hungry Root gives me back that mental energy. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Shrink Chicks listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash Shrink Chicks to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash Shrink Chicks. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. When bloggers or influencers post their outfit links, nine times out of 10, I click on it and immediately exit because the price is bananas. It wasn't until recently that I clicked on something expecting it to be the usual out of my price range sweater and it was under $60 at Quince. Quince has become my ultimate destination for luxury essentials that won't break the bank. Let me tell you about some of the gems I found at Quince. From their 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters starting at just $50 to their washable silk tops and dresses, organic cotton sweaters, and stunning 14 karat gold jewelry, Quince offers a range of high quality items at prices that are truly within reach. And here's the best part. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Yes, you heard that right. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the middleman passing the savings on to us. I recently got my hands on one of their washable silk tops and let me tell you it has become a staple in my wardrobe. Not only is it incredibly versatile, I've worn it to work, out with friends, and even dressed it up for a date night, but the quality is unmatched. Give yourself the luxury you deserve with Quince. Go to quince.com slash shrinkchicks for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash shrinkchicks to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash shrinkchicks. I would like to talk on this thing of, right, somebody wrote in this thing that we hear often is because I know that I know better and I'm capable of doing better. I hear this a lot yeah. of that, well, if I start being so compassionate towards myself, I'm not going to have any drive or or it's going to, you know, yeah. it means that it's okay what I did. And I think there's people that get stuck in that, like that we have to shame ourselves or be hard on ourselves for motivation. Yeah, it's actually the research shows it's the number one block to self-compassion. This gets way more than any other belief barrier. Look at the research. It isn't true. <laughs> you know, what can I say? So, you know, and but we don't even need to look at the research. I'll talk about the research. But if you just use a more similar analogy, think about motivating a child, right? If a child gets a failing math grade, yeah, you could shame that child. You can say you better improve your math grades or else you never like, You'll never get free time again or whatever. 
it will kind of work, just like self-criticism kind of works, but it has a lot of knock-on effects. You can create anxiety in that child. You can undermine that child's self-confidence, right? They may just give up. They may develop fear of failure. You're actually making it harder for that child to succeed because when you're full of shame and self-doubt and self-criticism, it's hard to learn. Your, your brain's just overloaded with, I'm so bad, I can't do this, you know, worried. So a much more effective way to motivate that child to do better is, first of all, say, hey, you got a feeling great. Oh, I'm sorry, that hurts. It doesn't mean you're any less worthy as a person. You know, I love you just as you are. But you don't stop there if you care about the child. You say, hey, I really want you to get your math grades up because I know you want to go to college. How can I help? What can we learn? What went mm. wrong with your, with your study routine? Maybe we can get a tutor or maybe we can try something different. And so when we do that, what happens is we have more self-confidence and really important, we're able to learn from our mistakes. I mean, people say failure is the best teacher and we don't believe it, but it's true, right? So just, just to show some of the data, you know, you can kind of understand this intuitively, but we taught self-compassion to NCAA athletes, right? And these people, they can't be second best. Their scholarships are riding on it. A lot of them want to go into pro sports. You know, we have basketball players and football players and and um, all sorts of sports. They can't be second best. So we taught them self-compassion, to be self-compassionate about failures in their training routine or if they lost a game or didn't perform as well as they want. But the compassion was was combined, and this is a part of compassion, with um, encouragement. First of all, I believe in you. I'm here for you. But learning. The most compassionate thing you can do to an athlete is give them constructive feedback. Not like you suck, but constructive feedback about how to improve your game. And it did. Their performance improved, both their, their own perception of, the, of their performance and their coaches' judgments of their performance. So, you know, it actually helps motivate you to succeed. You know, but, but it also, it may, it may ask you, you, know, you might ask the question, is this really worth it? You know, or not, you may change your goals because with compassion, you want to do well at those things that are really important to you. Maybe if it's not so important to you, but it's just because to please your mom or someone else, you may decide actually this goal isn't worth it. So it leads to greater authenticity in goals. And then once our goals are more meaningful and authentic for us, we're also more likely to succeed at them. Wow. Mm. So it sounds like what you're saying is that you can have self-compassion and also have constructive criticism and, Absolutely. you know, find different ways of doing things. Because it sounds like, you know, and we get this question all the time, a lot of people feel like it's either one or the other. Right? Yeah. I can only criticize myself in order to get better. I can't have both. Criticism is not a very effective motivator. Right. It kind of works in a kind of lousy way with lots of knock-on negative side effects. But it's not nearly as effective as constructive criticism, encouragement, and support. Mm. You know, it also makes mm-hmm. me think about, because I know we were, you know, we're talking about, okay, give yourself compassion as you would a friend. Yeah. What, how, you know, what would you say to the people who are maybe very critical of others or people who are maybe very judgmental of others? Where does that, yeah. where does that come in? Well, it's true. We aren't always compassionate to our friends. Or sometimes we may just sugarcoat things with our friends. Oh, it's not a problem, sweetheart, because we want to avoid conflict. But you aren't really being compassionate. You aren't really helping your friend when you code things, right? So, um, you know, usually people have some experience of compassion somewhere in their life. You know, there there are a few people, maybe, you know, sadly, who almost no experience of it. But most people, maybe their pet they care about. Or maybe they had a teacher who cared about them or a grandparent. 
you know, most of us do have some model or even you watch the show Ted Lasso, <laughs> you can model yourself off a of Ted Lasso. You know, so we know what it looks like. We know what it sounds like. We know what it feels like. Most of us, it's not like you've never seen it before. You can't recognize it out of a lineup. You know, yeah, we know what it looks like and what it sounds like and what it feels like. And so you can just, even if you aren't necessarily naturally compassionate to your friends, and there may be reasons for that, you know, you may have trauma history or who knows what, you can still create the ideal of compassion. And so there, there are actually three ways into self-compassion. You can, some people, you can give compassion to yourself directly. That's a little high bar, especially if you aren't used to it. You can imagine giving compassion to a friend and then turning it around and saying to yourself, or if that doesn't work for you, you can imagine what would a really compassionate person say to you? Like imagine if you had a conversation with the Dalai Lama, what would the Dalai Lama say to you? <laughs> you know, so usually, and we are able to kind of generate that image of what would a really compassionate person say to me? I mean, you can use that as a doorway in. So usually, or, or, you know, you it's funny, some people are the most compassionate to their pets, like the most uncomplicated, loving relationship, like with your dog, you know, just imagine what you'd say to your dog, or if your dog could talk, what your dog would say to you, yeah. you know, usually weigh in if we just, if we just look for some models. And it's really important to have models because, you know, sometimes we don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Well, actually, if you just, you know, um, look around a little bit, you probably will find some idea of what to say. We had someone write in asking about, can you explain either difference or, or how it coincides self-esteem and self-compassion? Yeah, yeah. So what, actually, when I first introduced self-compassion to the field, I had done a postdoc with a self-esteem researcher. So my first paper was titled A Healthier Alternative to Self-Esteem. But, you know, so it's kind of, it's, it's something that I was really cared about and did research on. So self-esteem is a judgment or an evaluation of worth. You know, it's like esteem, judgment. Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? I'm somewhere in between. Um, self-esteem tends to be conditional, right? So first of all, it's conditional on being special and above average. We can't be the same as others. We have to be above average to feel okay about ourselves. Um, sometimes it's linked to narcissism. Like we, we have to defend our egos to have self-esteem. We can't let in any perceived criticism. Um, but really, it's contingent. It's contingent on success, whether it's success in academics, if that's important, or sports, or business, or looks, or career, whatever is important to you, self-esteem, we have, we have to succeed in those domains that are important to us. So you might say it's a fair-weather friend. You know, it's there for us in the good times, but it deserts us in the bad times. So self-compassion, on the other hand, is also gives you a sense of worth, but it's not contingent. It's not a judgment or an evaluation. It comes simply from being a flawed human being. It comes as intrinsic to our very humanity, which means it's a stable friend. You, you don't have to be better than anyone. You just have to be messed up like they are. I can do that. You know, <laughs> you can, it's there for you when you succeed, but also when you fail. So um, the research shows that the self-worth linked to self-compassion is much more stable over time for that reason.
skeptical about custom beauty, I get it. My feed is flooded with customize this and personalize that, all promising to fix my fine lines and thinning hair. But when pro says custom, they actually mean it. It's no gimmick. Your formula couldn't exist without you. Their in-depth consultation analyzes over 80 factors for a complete view of your life and beauty goals. They get personal. Pros covers everything from your concerns to your age, exercise, and stress levels in order to uncover what's impacting your hair and skin health. They asked me about my hair loss being genetic in my family, how long it takes for my hair to get oily after a wash, what products and tools I use to style my hair, and even my zip code to understand how the water hardness, UV index, and cold dry winter in Philly might be impacting me. Next, they recommended a full routine of truly personalized products, which were only produced after I placed my order. Nothing pre-mixed, nothing off the shelf. Since I switched to pros, I've noticed my hair is so much softer, shinier, and fuller. I keep getting asked if I got a blowout from the salon. But don't just take my word for it. In a third-party double-bind dermatologist-supervised clinical controlled study, aka the gold standard in research studies, pros prove that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering my listeners an exclusive trial offer so you can see the difference custom care can make. 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash shrinkchicks. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash shrinkchicks for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash shrink chicks say goodbye to the cheap razor era my friends it's time to treat your body to the premium shave it deserves with athena club em and i just got back from an amazing trip to the caribbean to celebrate our 10-year anniversary of our practice the therapy group and in haste of packing because yours truly is a packing procrastinator i forgot my athena club razor at home and had to resort to using a subpar flimsy razor that left my skin feeling anything but smooth a mistake i will never make again the athena club hype is real the shave is seriously the smoothest I've ever experienced, and that is especially evident after having to use another razor in its absence. Aside from the amazing smoothest, let me tell you why Athena Club's razor kit is a must-have in your self-care routine. First off, can we talk about the price? At just $10, it's an absolute steal. But don't let the price fool you. This razor packs a serious punch. It comes with a beautifully made ergonomic handle and two super sharp razor heads that deliver an incredibly smooth shave every time. Plus, with the included magnetic hook, storage is a breeze. No more dealing with gooby blades or unexpected midnight shower crashing sound surprises. And the quality of the shave is top notch. Those five precision engineered blades glide effortlessly, leaving you a silky smooth skin every time. Plus, the water activated serum and built-in skin guards ensure a comfortable irritation free shave. Are you ready to upgrade your shaving experience? Switch to the best razor on the market and show your skin you care with Athena Club. Head over to athenaclub.com to try their award award-winning razor and body products and get 20% off your first purchase with code shrinkchicks at checkout. You can also find Athena Club razors at your local Target store. Trust me, you won't look back. Happy shaving. You know, as you're talking, I'm like, why don't we talk about self-compassion more? I mean, we talk about it a lot, but like socially, you know, human beings, why aren't we talking about it more? Why aren't we... It's changed. Yeah. Luckily, over the past 20 years, when I first started, no one did a Google search, wouldn't find anything. And now it's kind of in, people are starting to make fun of self-compassion now, which is good because, you know, you've made it. People make yes. fun of you, right? It's infamous. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's starting, but yeah, it's a, it's, you know, it's fairly new, about 20 years out there in the, in the general mi- mindset of the culture. 
But but because it works, I mean, this is the thing. The data is really unequivocal at this point. It works. You can try it out for yourself. It works. You know, yeah, there may be, you may be misusing it. Sometimes you think you're giving it yourself self-compassion. You're really just being self-indulgent. The mm. self-indulgent is opposite to self-compassion by definition. Because indulgence means giving yourself short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term harm. And if you're harming yourself, you aren't being self-compassionate. So you may think you're being self-compassionate, but if you're harming yourself, you are. Okay, I love that distinction, too, because <sighs> so many people asked questions about that. Yeah. yeah. Right? So, how, to ba- how to balance self-compassion with enabling bad habits in self, someone said. Yeah. So if it's, if it's a bad habit, if it's harming you, then it's not self-compassionate. Right. How do you change that bad habit? That's the big thing. What happens when, yeah, okay, I've been self-indulgent or I've been lazy or, you know, I've been kind of just, you know, snapping at my kids. And you don't just say, oh, that's okay. Everyone snaps to their kids. No, you're harming your relationships. But instead of saying, therefore, I'm a terrible person, whack, 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 as if that's going to help, you say, okay, yeah, I made a mistake. Um, This this isn't good. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person. It just means that this behavior is not healthy. How do I change Mm -hmm. it? Again, the research on this is very strong. It, it, It promotes taking personal responsibility for harms done or mistakes we've made. Um, at least to healthier behaviors, even hard ones like safe sex or you know exercising or um, eating well. So if you if you care about yourself, and it's really it's really what it comes down to caring about yourself and your health and your well being. Um, giving yourself kind of a more wise perspective. Compassion is also a type of wisdom. Compassion, like especially from like a more Eastern perspective, compassion is. You know, understanding all the causes and conditions that lead us to act as we do. And that's why we have understanding for it, because it's so complex. The idea that we are like these separate, separate individuals with total control over our decisions in our life, it's, it's not true. That's not the way human beings work. So when, you, when we have the wisdom that can take the bigger picture and see all the causes and conditions, well, that also gets you, gives you the wisdom to see, oh, I see. It's because, you know, I do this or I'm hanging out with these people. I'm on this situation. That's probably contributing to this behavior. Maybe I can make some shifts. There's a lot here. That is, yes. That's fascinating. There's so much here. And so, you know, I'm thinking about, because it sounds like as we're talking about this, it's very much a practice, right? You don't do this one time. This is something that has to be. It does feel spiritual in a lot of ways. It is spiritual. My, from my point of view, it is. You don't have to be spiritual to practice it, but to me, it's incredibly spiritual. Yeah. You know, like I say, if, if you go, if you if you kind of take the view that underlying reality, you could call it consciousness, you could call it awareness, you could use the G word God if you want to, whatever, you know, it really doesn't matter what you use it. But if you think of that as kind of the ground of being, then what's happening is we're just opening to our true nature. From my point of view, our true nature is compassionate, is loving, is peaceful, is wise. But we just, we get in the way by, you know, our conditioning and, you know, our fears and all those things that come up. And so when you, a real moment of compassion. So the three components, which is um, kindness, mindfulness, the common humanity, you call that loving connected presence. So when you're in a state of self-compassion, you're in a state of loving connected presence. And a lot of in a lot of people's books, they would call that a spiritual experience, you know. So 
so my four-year-old goes to a Quaker school. We go to friend's school. And um, uh, this is this summer. It's her first time at summer camp. It's a very big deal. We have it and it's not at her school. And so it's kind of scary for me, all these other kids and news, different values, whatever. And so the first day is, well, what what do we do tomorrow if there's an issue with another kid or right? I was like, what do you do? And she goes, we just go to the peace table. Um, (laughs) And I said, I don't know if there's going to be a peace table at day camp (laughs) the way there is at school. But I mean, a four year old gets it so well. Yes. So well. Yeah, that's right. It didn't take much to teach her. Right. It took like giving her access to stuff and having communication and having it modeled for her. But you have to wonder, right? Like, is it, is that really such a part of us? If children can take it up so easily, that probably gives us some information about our capabilities. Yeah, exactly. So empathy, for instance, um, is pretty, is universal and kicks in around three years old, two or three years old. Helping behavior, for instance, these are, these are natural behaviors. You can look at it from a purely evolutionary standpoint, if you want to, you can, be totally scientific. You can be more spiritual. I think in a way, it doesn't matter from my point of view, it's whatever works for you. Mm -hmm. But what is true is that when you get in a state of loving, connected presence towards your pain, your mistakes, your failures, you are more able, first of all, you're more able to cope with suffering. So you aren't so overwhelmed by it, which often leads to the nasty behaviors towards others when we're overwhelmed by our own shame or guilt or inability to cope with things. So it increases compassion for self and then also for others. Um, so it's, uh, you know, to me, it's like a no-brainer. <laughs> we should be teaching this school. Right, right. <laughs> well, but it is yeah. interesting. I'm wondering for you, what's like, okay, so you research self-compassion, you have lived self-compassion, you have taught self-compassion, right? So like you, let's talk about embodiment of self-compassion. And then we're currently living a day and age where if we even go towards social media technology, we don't have a lot of human beings that are always so self-compassionate, very compassionate towards each other. What's it like as someone who's sitting here like, no, 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 we're missing it. It's worth <laughs> Does it ever the answer? (laughs) Do you ever feel a little bit like you're losing your mind? You're like, no, people, we can do it. Well, I mean, I suppose from my point of view, because I've seen such exponential growth and interest in self-compassion, you know, I'm just I'm pretty happy with the the growth that has been there. Yeah. Um, You know, there's there's a lot of knowledge we have, wisdom we have in the world that isn't being implemented. You know, and so, yeah, it is, it is frustrating, but I do have some faith because I, because from my point of view, I don't see humans as intrinsically bad and somehow they need some outside force to come in and save them. I see human beings as intrinsically good and there's stuff that gets in the way. It's like the sunshine, clouds passing over the sun, but the sun is still shining. So, you know, I, I hope I have faith that with time and again, if it, if it works, here, here's the, here's the thing. Starting to look at this in business context reduces turnover. You know, increases work productivity, job satisfaction. Mm-hmm. Once we start seeing those types of benefits, then I think it'll start becoming more widespread. Mm, but you can only absolutely. do it you one one person at a time, one or maybe one group at a one, time. Yes, <laughs> yes, and then it spreads, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yes. that's the amazing thing for me. It's just, I mean, if I were to die tomorrow, I, honestly, I'd, I'd be like, okay, I'm happy, you know. Well, but it's so true for the business part, right? Like my husband had switched jobs this year and he came from, I mean, his job before was like, get in here. We don't care. Stay until you need it. We don't care that you have a family outside of here. And now he's yeah. at this job that's like 
all about like the company like the culture of the company and like please go take care of your family and you know and and the difference my husband's like I will work myself to the bone for this other company now because they are so nice and understanding like he's now so loyal and feels strong and believes and empowered and and like has all this motivation the other place he was like ah this sucks (laughs) yeah exactly yeah intrinsic motivation really works a lot better yes um, as opposed to control control right the the self-critic is trying to control us Self-compassion is like intrinsic motivation. I want mm. to because I care. It's much, you know, the research is, without a doubt, it's more effective. Oh, yeah. Uh, so so for anyone listening to this who's like, oh, God, like I really have to start practicing self-compassion. I recognize how hard I am on myself. On a day-to-day basis, like what would you recommend that someone is doing to be kind of aware of their thoughts and to practice that self-compassion? Like what would you recommend that they do? Yeah, so it's actually can be one very simple way is through physical touch again because we have we have an evolved capacity for care. So, you know, putting your hands on your heart or your face or some touch actually changes your physiology. It deactivates sympathetic response, activates parasympathetic response. Increases heart rate variability, calms you down, you know, it feels good. So, um, and because as babies, we, we, we know that we know a compassionate touch. We, it's, it's part of our um, evolved system. That's a very easy way to do it. Asking yourself, what would I say to a friend in this situation? Or what would a good friend say to me if that's easier for you? Bringing in the three components of self-compassion, mindfulness. This is really hard. Common humanity. I'm not alone. This is a part of life. This is nothing wrong with me for experiencing this. And kindness, again, some words of kindness. I do want to bring one thing up, though, is on the concept of backdraft. It's really Im- important to be aware of. So backdraft is my, my, my colleague who co-developed the training program with me, Chris Germer, is a psychologist, and he came up with the term. So it's actually a firefighting term. So when you, you know, the house is on fire, you don't fling open the windows because the air rushes in, ignites the okay. flames. Same thing can happen with self-compassion practice, especially with people maybe with an early trauma history or, you know, a lot of pain that your whole life you had to like close the doors of your heart to stay safe. Mm. And then you start opening up the doors of your heart, the fresh air of the love and kindness rushes in, the pain rushes out and it can feel explosive sometimes. Sometimes people do explode at their therapist or other people or themselves. Um, just it's really important to know that this is part of the healing process. Mm. It doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It means you're doing it right. Because what it does is you're opening the doors of the, your heart. You're allowing this pain to come up so that it can be healed. But it does mean that you need to back off a little bit. You know, firefighters, one of the reasons they carry those picks is they poke holes in the building. They let the air in more slowly. So sometimes mm. it's self-compassion practice. We just need to go a little more slowly. Maybe you don't want to, maybe putting hands on our heart is too much. So maybe just maybe, you know, pet your cat or something or just feel your feet on the ground or something else. So it doesn't even matter so much how you practice self-compassion. It's the shift in intention to support yourself. And if you're someone with a lot of backdraft or trauma history, you don't you don't want to just dive head first in mm-hmm. because it's, you're you may be re-traumatizing yourself. So having a cup of tea in response to backdraft is a beautiful act of self-compassion. You're blowing my mind right now. And I'm thinking about, right, like how many interactions we've had where you're being very, like you're being compassionate towards someone and they're like, just stop, uh, like just stop, right? Like you watch someone's body 
contort themselves and they get they like put this like wall up and like physically often of being like uh, uh like just just stop i'm like so uncomfortable yeah exactly like, they, they, like i cannot let this in yeah it's called fear of compassion you can have fear of compassion from others fear of giving compassion and fear of receiving compassion mm. um, you, you should if, i don't know if you know paul gilbert's work but he's actually um a, a really well-known uh, therapist from the uk who developed compassion focused therapy and his work is specifically designed at people with trauma histories or people who have a really hard time, a strong fear of compassion. And they figured out ways to kind of work slowly and work with all of it. This this really effective. Oh, what incredible. I do in therapy, I'm not a therapist. I kind of I'm kind of skill building, resource building. Um, but therapy is also has really important. <laughs> <laughs> But I, this is amazing because this is also this is also the important stuff that you do outside the room, right? Like this is and that's what I think is so beneficial. So, so many times you have people that come into therapy and they start this process and they go and they show up for 15 minutes and that's fabulous. And there's not a ton in between those sessions. And this is real things you can do in between those sessions that are going to help everything. Yeah, we actually have the, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook. I'm not shamelessly promoting it, but just... No, do it. Sh- you can. Promote you yourself. Can. Do it. <laughs> well, because Chris Dormer and I developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is an eight-week training program. You can take that online. For many people, it's too much. Or it's, you know, they don't want this done too much too quick. So we actually wrote up the program in workbook format. And um, a lot of therapists give their clients the workbook yeah. to fill out kind of in between sessions because... There's a lot of simple things you can do. You know, it's actually, it's, again, like I say, it's not rocket science. These are very simple practices you can do in the middle of your day that really make a difference. Um, I want to do one more listener question, and then we have to get to our calling BS segments. Um, but I, I and also don't forget fierce self compassion either. I want to talk about. Oh yeah, oh, oh, we're, yes. oh, we're talking about fierce self compassion. Yes, but so let me ask you this: maybe this can go into fierce self compassion. Okay. I think this is our good. Somebody wrote in and said, "I would really love tips as a recovering perfectionist raised in a home with highly critical parents." Yeah. So, um, you know, perfectionism is basically being anti-human. <laughs> You know, so so the research really shows strongly that self-compassion combats perfectionism because what it does is it, you know, perfectionism in a way is self-contingent self-esteem. I need to be perfect to be worthy. If I'm not perfect, I'm not worthy. Mm. And so, again, what self-compassion does is, it, you know, you're, whether or not you achieve or perfect or fail, it has nothing to do with your self-worth, nothing at all. You are, you are worthy, even if you're a total mess. We're all worthy as total messes. Our worth is intrinsic to being human beings. You know, our, our care, our kindness, support is intrinsic. Doesn't mean you won't try to do your best. Remember those NCAA athletes? Yeah, they still wanted to be the top of their game, but their worth is a contingent on it. And so when you move your sense of self-worth from being perfect to being a human being, then you can, you know, try your best and you'll probably be more successful at whatever you're trying to be perfect at if you take the pressure off of needing to be perfect for your self-worth. So just, just think like unhooking your self-worth from the, what you do, you know, find the self-worth intrinsically. You are a human being. I love that term compassionate mess. Like we say the goal of practice is simply to be a compassionate mess, which is kind of not that you're trying to be a mess, but you're trying to be compassionate. Like that's your goal to be compassionate. Mm-hmm. Even if you're still messed, but you're a compassionate mess, you've succeeded. You know, 
And then if you, if you, if you're, you know, I, I, I've achieved a lot in my life. I've, you know, I, I, I'm an achiever as well. Um, this doesn't mean you won't achieve. It's just you're not, you're, you're achieving. It doesn't say anything about that you're worth as a person. But, and let me also talk quickly about fierce self-compassion is because this is my more, my more recent work. So there's two really sides, there's two sides of compassion. One is tender acceptance. We accept ourselves as the mess we are. You know, we, we accept our emotions. It's, it's kind of soft, nurturing, comforting. Um, but there's also fear self-compassion is taking action. So we need both acceptance and action. So we accept ourselves as we are. We accept, you know, our emotions in the moment. But that doesn't, if we care about ourselves, then it means we also want to take action to, to make things better. Again, our worth isn't dependent on it. But because we care, you know, we want to do things. So for instance, say no drawing boundaries, really key part of self-compassion. For women, very hard because we're socialized to be nice. But part of self-compassion, I call it mama bear self-compassion. Care about yourself. You're going to say no. You're going to draw boundaries, right? You're also going to meet your own needs. You're going to value your own needs. You can spend some of your precious time and energy and resources and money even on your own needs because you recognize that you're worthy of it. And then again, finally, motivating change, you know, taking action to motivate change, to follow your dreams, reach your goals, do the needful, change in healthy behaviors. That is self-compassionate. But your worth doesn't come from success in those endeavors. You're doing it because you care, not in order for you to be worthy. Now, when you did, so you did a fear self-compassion, how women could harness kindness to speak up, claim their power and thrive. Yeah. Why did you decide to do it for women? I, I mean, I could get, yeah, but. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so first I was just going to, you know, do it for everyone, but it was right. I wrote it right in the midst of the whole Me Too movement. And I just realized that, so it's kind of like yin and yang. We need both, you know, yin might be more tender, yang might be more fierce. Um, but gender role socialization, and by the way, to be clear, I'm not talking about biological sex, mm-hmm. gender identity, if you're trans or non-binary, socialization, the shoebox we put people in. So men are put in the shoebox, people, people raised as men anyway, as they can be fierce, they can be aggressive, they can, you know, they can, uh, or they can be energetic, take charge. But if they're too tender, they get bullied and like mm-hmm. beat up and called names for that. And so it's hard, harder for people raised as men to access their tender side. But women, yeah, they can be tender and soft and all that, well, especially towards others. And so even self-compassion, I mean, most of the people who show up at my workshops are women because culturally it's okay to be care about self-compassion. But if they get angry or too fierce, you know, she's bossy, she's too ambitious. Look at how we treated Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. You know, she was so ambitious. You would never say that about a man. No. So because I wanted to focus on fierce self-compassion and because people raised as women have more barriers to it culturally i decided there's kind of there's a lot of feminism in the book or not just in terms of understanding why it is you know the the history of patriarchy and why it was actually very useful for the system to suppress women's fear side because then women would be compliant and go along and just like not speak up or make waves mm. you know but it's not that people raises men don't need it as well don't need balance um but if anything they need a book like tender self-compassion how men can harness yes. kindness to like <laughs> you better at work and reach your goals you know is that your is so is that what you're writing next the next <laughs> well, i'm not because i don't have the lived experience you know um but it needs to be written so it's everyone needs balance but that that's the reason i 
I wrote it for a woman, although I do, the part of me feels bad about because I know men need it as well. But hey, it was during the Me Too movement. I was yeah, pissed off. Listen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good you job. You were feeling fierce. So you had to do it for you, you know? too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so tell us, as you know, we do a segment on this show with all of our guests called Calling BS. So I know that there's so many, but could you call out? So can you do some myth busting of your field? Yeah. So, um, oh, I know how uh, this is a myth we didn't talk about. There's a lot of them, but self-compassion makes you weak. That, that's partly because people really think of tender self-compassion. There's a reason like 90% of people are women who show up, you know, oh, that's kind of weak. That's kind of soft, squishy stuff. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> so if you look at the research, um, doesn't matter what type of difficulty or challenge you're talking about, whether it's getting through like a hurricane, or through COVID, or dealing with AIDS, or raising with special needs kids, or going through a divorce, or even combat. We have a lot of actually, the VA is very interested in self-compassion. We have a lot of data on combat veterans who use self-compassion, and it makes you stronger. It actually allows you to cope with the difficulties, the emotional difficulties, trauma, you know, like uh, moral injury, all stuff. So with combat soldiers, um, people are less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome if they had self-compassion. And get this, the amount of self-compassion they had was more predictive of whether or not they developed PTSD than the level of combat they saw. Wow. Wow. So think wow. about that. Even more important than what happens to you is how you relate to what happens to you. Whoa. You know, maybe it's a little less serious, but you beat yourself up and you shame yourself. You're going to be worse off than if it's harder, but you give yourself compassion and support. And you know, life's a battle. Who's going to make you stronger if you're an ally, if you give yourself support, if you have your own back, or if you're an enemy, cutting yourself down, kneecapping yourself? Of course, self-compassion makes you stronger. So that's wow. a big yeah. bust. That's wow. Like- <laughs> Well, because I think about it in terms of trauma as well, right? Like, think about this is that people can have such different experiences of trauma and it can affect them so differently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, wow. if the more you're self compassionate, and by the way, it might mean fears, it might mean get off the couch. You aren't helping yeah. yourself. It can be like, you know, like a constructive, but mama bear sometimes can, you know, have a little attitude. Yeah. Um, you know, what do I need? Do I need that more fierce voice or I need that more tender voice? But um, the voice of compassion will make you stronger and healthier and more able to cope. Uh, and it'll just radically change your life. But you, you don't really know that until you try it. So all of your listeners, I encourage you to, to try it for yourself. So you're going to listen to this episode. You're going to go online and you're going to buy for your self-compassion. And then... But my also- first book self-compassion which yeah. in some ways maybe an easier intro for people but, but also I have to tell you your website's amazing you have videos mm-hmm. on your website you yeah. have uh, activities on your website like your website is yeah. incredible so yeah. to, to let everyone know all the places they can find you because yeah. you have great you just, resources if you google self-compassion you'll find me because i got in early in the algorithms but you <laughs> can also take the self-compassion scale you can measure your own self-compassion level i have a, like thousands of research articles up there organized by category but um, I, I mean, the biggest thing is uh, practices, free practices. So, you don't, you know, if you don't have any money, you can't even afford to buy my book. No problem. You can just try the practices and just see how it how it's working for you. And we're going to put all that information in the show notes and also on all of our social media. Uh, so you've access. You're already all over our website on our resources page because we're huge fans. We cannot thank you for being here enough. It was really amazing. Thank you. It's a lot of fun.
Thank you. Uh, thanks for listening to today's episode of Shrink Tricks. We always ask you to rate, review, subscribe. I bet that you have a friend that maybe needs a little bit more self-compassion and sounds like you should send this episode over to them. Um, you can follow us at Shrink Tricks on all the social medias, mainly on Instagram, and then also at the therapy group if you're interested in connecting with a therapist to do all of your self-compassion work alongside these amazing resources. You can check out thetherapygroup.com. Thank you all for being here today. We'll see you next week on Shrink Tricks. And then don't forget that to grow yourself, you got to know yourself. We'll see you soon.